0: the Lord, what a glorious opportunity it is to open up his scriptures and to look again at what God has done for us in Christ. I would encourage you to do so by turning this morning in your Bible to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 verses 1 through 10 will continue in our series in this great gospel. This morning's title for my message is Betraying Innocent Blood. There is a betrayal of innocent blood that takes place in the events leading up to the gospel, inasmuch as Judas, the disciple, the faithless disciple, the son of perdition, has sold Christ, betrayed him, that is, for 30 measly pieces of silver. We pick up on his story in our passage today, Matthew 27 1 through 10, and we find some interesting facts about his heart in relationship with Christ. An alternate title for today's sermon could be the recompense of Judas. Recompense, a sort of play on words in two ways. First of all, Judas tries to pay back the money that he stole, that he received for betraying his master. Recompense, in a second sense, there was a payment of just dues for the sin of Judas that he received in God's justice, falling on him like a hammer, condemning him to death without repentance. Repentance. And so we have the fearful realization of the consequences of unrepentant sin in our gospel record today, which ought to remind us afresh this morning of the amazing grace for any of us who are saved from that same eventuality. If you have your Bible open, I would encourage you to stand with me if you're able this morning. Again, with your scriptures open to Matthew 27, 1-10, Would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word? And let us look at these verses today. Follow me as I read. Matthew 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him over to Pilate the governor. Verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Verse 9, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Last week, we covered the account of Peter's denial of Jesus. This morning, we cover the account of the aftermath of Judas betrayal of Jesus these two stories on the surface are not dissimilar you have two men who would appear faithful to the Christ yet the end their destiny the end of the story for each one could not be more different in fact as we noticed in the context of Peter's denial of Christ there are dichotomies Two interesting Ideas, when set next to each other, are apparently contradictory, but instead reinforce one another. The dichotomies between the lion lines throughout the betrayal, trial, arrest, and execution of Christ continue. Let me give you a few as they occur to me in my study. First of all, 27.1. In, ver- in the first verse of our text today, when morning arrives, the account states clearly that all... The chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. While the night before, it was all they could do to get two witnesses to agree on a charge against him. And even then, it was utterly spurious. That is to say, isn't it interesting that unanimity, that a a unity of purpose, common cause, is instantly available Among the elders and chief priests. Have you ever sat in on a government committee? Have you ever met with people who are in charge of anything? How often is it to get a large room full of people who fancy themselves leaders with authority to agree on anything? When you think of that perspective point, it becomes striking in the context of our passage today that they agreed with one accord in their council. we will put him to death. What does this tell us about the nature of man and his sin? One thing that unites us is our, before we meet Christ, is our rebellion against the Lord of glory. Likely at any other moment, any other meeting, any other committee, any other council, you couldn't get the elders and the chief priests to agree on much of anything, but at this moment, they are in unity. In unity to their condemnation. In the second verse of our text today, they bind him and lead him away says, they bound him, Christ, and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Bound, led, and delivered over to the powers that be. And think of it, this is the Son of God and the Son of Man under these circumstances, willfully submitting, going to the slaughter without protest. This is the Son of God who came to set the captives free, is submitting to the bondage, of his captors, would be killers at this time. As we look further in the text, we see that Judas suddenly has second thoughts about selling his master out, selling him into the hands of his killers these murderous, this murderous horde for 30 measly pieces of silver. The scriptures tell us in other places, the price of a slave yet Judas himself was deaf to the words of Christ, apparently, His spiritual ears were not open to anything preceding this moment. Think in chapter five verse one in this great Sermon on the Mount, where Christ proclaimed to all the hearers and certainly his disciples, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Judas was doing the most cursed of things and plotting, the betrayal of his master to receive temporal riches that will fail with the using. Moth and rust will corrupt them. They will not pass from this life. They are a measly sum. They will be spent in mere moments. Are they worth the price of a soul? Jesus also said in 5.12 in this Sermon on the Mount as well, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These words were lost on Judas. These words indeed were lost on all the disciples. They had all scattered. The shepherd had been struck and the sheep had been scattered. And this, brothers and sisters, again, was the poison in the cup of the wrath of God poured out on our Messiah and He partook on our behalf. Lastly this morning, dichotomy. Perhaps I have two here. As we look closely at the text we see that meanwhile chief priests project or pro, uh, reject Judas refund to the treasury. Judas comes to repay his money, they say no, we won't receive this. Why? Appealing to the laws, we will see later in the message, the price, it was the price of blood or blood money as it were, is an unsuitable offering to God. That is Judas, refund of the money he received to betray christ was rejected it was not placed back into the treasury because the price of blood is an unsuitable offering to god yet think of it in just mere moments just a day or two the blood of christ they would soon shed would ultimately prove the only suitable offering dichotomies in the text glorious details of jesus final days are compounding in spite of the apparent tragic turn of events. He continues in, our moments that we, in these moments we read of today to drink the wrath-filled poison cup for us. Let me give you a heading for this morning's message. The Judas account sheds light on the culminating gospel by means of the following. What do I mean by culminating? the gospel that is achieving its apex moving towards its goal satisfying the justice that a holy god deserves so as to make sufficient payment for the sins of man the gospel will culminate when christ goes to the cross and he himself says for all time it is finished as the moments leading up to this event are unfolding even the judas account sheds light on the culminating gospel, and does, and it does so by means of the following: first, his, that is Judas' personal encounter with Christ; secondly, the use of the law and the temple in this instance; and thirdly, varied or various cross-reference connections, prophecies, and other references in Scripture to this event. So let let us consider these in series. First, Judas' account sheds light on the culminating gospel. By means of his personal encounter with Christ, this record, verses twenty or chapters twenty-six through twenty-seven, singles out three individuals and their encounters with Christ. I submit to you this morning representing three states of heart with respect to the Lord, or three states of heart in relationship to Jesus. There are threes all the way through this passage. This. These passages we are reading in and around our text today, we have already noted that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, Jesus himself prays three times for the cup to be removed. And on all three occasions, his disciples do not support, do not encourage, do not stand with them, do not say, we will bear the cup with you, do not even pray alongside their master, seem unconcerned of the events that are transpiring, they are asleep. Three times under this spiritual anguish our Lord suffers knowing he is on the precipice of bearing the weight of our sin. And three times he is resolved when the answer, it, you must, the answer is you must bear it my son to go to the cross. It isn't long the next day unfolds where the discouragement mounts and the cup begins to fill with the poison that he would drink. And Peter denies him three times. Three times he is asked if he is associated with this one who is standing kangaroo trial in the court of Caiaphas. And each time he swears, he cusses, he gives an oath, he adopts the language of the reprobate and saying, I do not know the man. I have no idea what you're talking about. So three times Christ prays for the cup to be removed. Three times... ...indignant saying... Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so we proclaim this morning. We continue three more verses. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? speaking of Jesus, they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So already, as this encounter of the faithful saint is recorded, where her pouring out this very expensive ointment on Christ is preparation symbolically for burial, we see the contrast of a soon-coming encounter of Judas with Christ, where he will look for an opportunity Not to worship his Lord, not to sacrifice for his Lord, not to pour out an expensive offering on his Lord, but instead to sell him for his own gain, to sell him out and to receive in exchange for betraying him 30 pieces of tarnished silver that will perish with the using. It's an interesting study itself if you sort of follow the money at this point in the gospel. Well, this woman is willing to pour out, likely her entire dowry, a fortune for her, upon Christ because he is worthy of all she has. Judas is jealous and others are asking, shouldn't this be given to the poor? In other gospel texts, we find that Judas himself was most perturbed. The language, the account lets us in behind the scenes of his heart. He wants this ointment to go into the treasury. Why? Because he was stealing regularly, from that sum for his own personal gain. And so it continues. And so this pattern of sinfulness continues, even at the expense of Christ himself. As this ointment is poured out in this encounter, however, this faithful saint, this woman at Bethany, is preparing Christ for burial and in so doing, worshiping him. This action serves to illustrate the truly godly and spirit-led devotion to Jesus that was due him in this moment of his ministry. And praise the Lord that if you are in Christ today, he has changed your heart and is changing your heart so that you have new desires to offer to him sacrifices of praise to lay down your life, to take up your cross, to pour yourself out to him because of the overwhelming sense of gratitude that His amazing grace has saved you. Such is the duty of a faithful saint, and such is the evidence of true salvation. This was this woman's personal encounter with Christ, second encounter. We covered this at length last week. This is the encounter of the penitent sinner, Peter himself. 69 of the same chapter, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you were with Jesus, the Galilean, but he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. This of course happens two more times until this chapter in Peter's shameful life closes to this point in 75. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This encounter with Christ is a second stage of the heart with respect to the Lord. It is the encounter of the penitent sinner. His sin is on his sleeve, he has just demonstrated it, it is obvious. But what is different about Peter and Judas? He recognizes that he has just denied his Savior, his Master, his Lord. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, this man, Peter, had just days prior confessed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Spirit was at work within this man. The Spirit was at work within Peter to show him his sin, and in this moment, I'm sure he saw it clearest of all. Peter, at this point, whatever his previous ideas of self, was at a new low. He realized that in himself, in his personal resolve, and by means of his own personality and his decisive action had no ground on which to stand in the day of testing and so Peter's personal encounter is one of a repenting sinner that is a penitent sinner one who places himself at the mercy of the lord confesses his wrongdoing and pleads for salvation in Christ alone what is the third encounter The third encounter in and around our text today is our text today. It's Judas. In verse 3 of Matthew 27, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, Listen, sounds like a confession. It is of sorts. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Of course, he threw down the pieces of silver into the temple. He departed. He went and hanged himself. This, is, this encounter with Christ is the encounter of a condemned reprobate, an unbeliever. Judas, though he confessed his sins of sorts, did not repent. Judas, though he had remorse of sorts, did not confess his sin and place faith in Jesus Christ to save him. It's interesting to note that Judas, quote, changed his mind, quote, he seems to reverse course in his actions as well, almost as if he were repenting. What does this teach us? It teaches us that there is a category of external, behavioral, and even psychological change that falls short of repentance and faith. No one comes to Christ unless a deep and profound and heart reaching and changing miraculous work takes place by the Spirit of God. You could pull Lazarus out of the tomb. You could put makeup on his face. You could sit him at the head of the table. You could prop his eyes open And at a glance it might appear to those who had come, if he didn't smell like death, that he was alive. But Lazarus was no more alive than the moment he was wrapped in grave clothes with a stone guarding the entrance to his tomb. What was it that changed the state of Lazarus? It was the sovereign word of Christ that commanded life from death and said, Come forth, Lazarus. And at the command of Christ, he was resurrected. He received in his physical body regeneration, newness of life. And so it is with us, believer, in this room. When you came to Christ, there was a sovereign call from the death of sin that said to you or to you or to you, come forth. And you came forth. Judas is sorry in a sense. Judas is remorseful in a sense. But he has not repented. He has not placed faith in Christ. He is not saved. Listen, Judas regretted the death of Christ. He hated to see that his actions were responsible for the events that were transpiring. But listen, he did not embrace the death of Christ as payment for his betrayal of his master. That's the difference between him and Peter. Instead, how do we know this and what did he do? Instead, his last act, Judas's, Last act on this world, in this world was one of flagrant law-breaking, suicide. Listen, no man can die for his sin and receive justification. No man can die for his own justification. In killing himself, Judas might have thought, "Well, this should pay for my sin." It did not. The justice of God required much more. In order for Judas to be justified, he must associate and embrace and realize he had to, that the death of Christ was the poison cup that was downed for him, that was taken for him, the justice of God on his behalf. We can't bleed for ourselves and be saved. We can't work and earn salvation. Not one righteous act earns an iota of merit in fact, they're counted as death, as debt against us, the Scriptures say. No man can die. No man can work. No man can live. No man can sacrifice for his own justification, only Christ. So we see the personal encounter that Judas has with Christ sheds light on the culminating gospel along with these other encounters. That is to say there are three types of people in, in this sense. There are those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. There are those who confess as much and place faith in Him at the moment of regeneration. and Perhaps this was Peter's moment. And then there are the faithful saints who recognize they owe their life to Christ because He gave His life for them. Second major point this morning, the Judas account sheds light on the culminating gospel by means of the use of the law and the temple. What do we mean by this? Well, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they fancied themselves absolute experts in the law of God. This was an incredible, self-incriminating, prideful identity that they had an association with their vocation. Yes, they were supposed to be experts in the word of God, but to say that, to pretend that they themselves were justified by that law or by keeping that law as a violation of the gospel itself, and they actually showed their own lawlessness time and again through the record. We've already mentioned in Matthew 26 and previous messages, they were seeking false testimony against Jesus. What were they doing? They were party to, complicit with, and seeking and affirming the breaking of the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. They were not doing unto their neighbor as they would have their neighbor do unto them, they were working injustice. They were doing injustice in court. All of these imperatives and prohibitions are clearly laid out in the law. And they were flagrantly disobeying them at every turn in the narrative. And our passage today is no exception. Listen to this, verse 5 Judas. He says, and throwing down, or it says, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went, and he went and hanged himself. Verse 6, the scene shifts to these characters, In the narrative, the chief priests. It says, but the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Oh, they have a real quandary here. Oh, what are we to do? And they're going to have another council. Turn with me if you would. In your Bible to Numbers 35. When we read these verses from the law, we will see the self incriminating nature of this decision on the part of the priests. It is stunning, giving the record that they knew and demonstrated that they knew in this sort of fake. you know, this, this sort of feigned concern with what should we do with this money? Oh, we have to do the right thing. We have to uphold the law. In this pretentious show of legalism, they were incriminating themselves. They were bringing to the attention of all the readers exactly what was taking place in their hearts. Their sin was moving from their soul onto their sleeve. Listen, Numbers 35, 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, verse 31, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood. Pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. What do we learn from this account and from this passage of the law? Well, we learn that the, of the self-incriminating nature of the decision on the part of the priests is stunning in view of what we've just read. The commandment, the law forbids the option of a murderer satisfying the punishment due his crime with any amount of cash. So if there was a trial and someone was found to be guilty of a crime and that crime was murder premeditated killing of his neighbor, let's say. He could not pay a million dollars, a billion dollars, a trillion dollars, and go free. The price that was required for his crime was his own life. All the way back to Genesis 9, 6. I require life for life, God said. This was justice. And so it was laid out in the law. Now think of this. It was on the basis of this very law that the refund of Judah was rejected. What did this say about the position that the the, uh, chief priests were taking in the matter? It was to say that Judas must pay for his crime of murdering Christ complicit in his death, not with 30 pieces of silver, but with capital punishment. In refusing to accept Judas' refund for this reason was to deem Judas the murderer. Do you get this? That to take that money and say, this is blood money, it is to presuppose that Judas was the murderer and the criminal in this case, and Christ was the victim. Notice, this absolutely contradicted their own trial, betraying their own knowledge of their their own murderous culpability in the matter. They had just charged Jesus with a crime, blasphemy. They felt worthy of death. They knew full well that he had done nothing wrong. And now in refusing the blood money from Judas, they were saying, in effect, we know that Christ is innocent. We know that Judas is guilty. We better follow the law and not put this money into the treasury the self incriminating evidence of legalism. This is the duplicitous hypocrisy of Christ haters. They make a show of being law abiding on the outside, but on the inside, these whitewashed tombs were full of dead man's bones, and they were responsible for the death of men. Now notice the second use of the law, or how the law condemns the leaders in this matter. Not just blood money, but blood pollution is at stake in this event. Notice it says again in Numbers 35, You shall not uh, verse 33, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Have you ever considered this thought? What was the blood pollution that came upon the land when Christ was murdered by His accusers? That is to say, collectively, what judgment was deserving on that society for not just killing a man in cold blood without justice being served, but for killing God who became man. This concept of blood pollution condemned not just those who were responsible, you know, in their decisions in court and in their actions in the mob, saying crucify him and slapping chains upon his wrists and ankles, It condemned the whole society. A cloud of God's judgment began to fall due to the blood pollution of the land on account of the death of Christ, dramatically pictured in these proceedings. Going back to Matthew 27, in light of that law, let us notice what continues to transpire. Verse 7, Matthew 27. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Notice verse 8, Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Blood pollution. The land was polluted. The land, that is to say, was deserving of judgment because innocent blood had been shed and justice for that crime had not yet been served. This land, incidentally, was used as a cemetery And these events would prove something like omens of pending judgment. The blood of Christ shed by the collective hands would condemn the land to judgment, waiting for these perpetrators to be brought to capital justice. No wonder the prophecy of imminent destruction over the prophet-killing city Jerusalem in Matthew 23 and 24. Moving back, what has Jesus said? Matthew 23:37 O Jerusalem Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not see your house is left to you desolate he goes on 24 verse 2 truly I say to you there will not be left here speaking of the temple One stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. He goes on to disclose the widespread cataclysmic judgment that will befall the temple and the city in which it dwelt, Jerusalem. Why? Because of blood pollution on the land for the murder of their Messiah. God's justice is real. Think of this, brothers and sisters. The calamitous effects of sinning in such a way brought upon the heads of all the people, judgment that was unimaginable. We're talking in the picture, in, the, in these verses, among these verses that we've read in past days, Matthew 24, you will know where the city of Jerusalem is in the future, not by that shining temple on the hill which reflects the sunlight for miles, but indeed by a swarm of buzzards that can be seen in the distance because the unburied corpses are strewn about the streets. This is the kind of hellish judgment that our sin deserved. After all, in our sin, we were equally enemies of Christ. But notice in the very death that was worthy of this judgment, By the very punishment Christ took, our sins are atoned for. If we recognize the Messiah, place faith in Him and trust Him to wash the judgment away. Wash the judgment away in the cup that He drank in the moments that unfold before us in the text today. Thirdly, use of law and temple. Notice what is going on in the premises of a place that was supposed to be dedicated to the service of the Lord. Here it's a refund for money that had been already given. Earlier, those who were officers within the temple, the chief priests and so on, had delivered, as we read in 26, 14, and 15, a special package, 30 pieces of silver, to Judas with the intent that they would betray the Messiah into their hands so they might kill him. What is going on? Exchange of money for sinful intent. The money changers in the temple showed that they deserved every bit the whipped fashioned out of cords that Christ made to beat them. It, they showed every bit how they deserved that the operations within this place that was meant to be called a house of prayer deserved to be disrupted because not only were they selling pigeons for personal gain, and siphoning off interest in those exchanges. But they were selling Christ for personal gain. One of the first acts of Jesus anticipated the judgment that sin deserved. The Passover, the feast was at hand. He went to Jerusalem. This is John 2.13. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. The same way that Judas threw the coins on the ground, this place had been desecrated. Christ says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. They refused. They did not repent. When the voice of God in flesh, the voice of the Messiah, Son of Man and Son of God said, take these things away. Cleanse my father's house. They refused. And so what happened? The house was destroyed. Zeal for for your house will consume me. It was written. The disciples remembered these words later. And so we see that Judas' account sheds light on the culminating gospel by means of the use of the law in this text to demonstrate sin and the temple. Blood money, blood pollution, and money changing. All of these shed a direct spotlight on the sinfulness of mankind. The sin that plagues all of us until Christ sets us free is represented here. Thirdly and finally, this morning, the Judas account sheds light on the culminating gospel by means of varied cross reference connections. Various other passages in Scripture are referred to, and these shed light on the culminating gospel. Therefore, Again, Matthew 27, 8, "...that field shall be called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me." We see here just about a word-for-word quotation In fact, not from Jeremiah, but from Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. This is interesting. I have a book I recommend to you called Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. What I have found is when you come to a passage like this, where there seems to be a mistake, an error, or a contradiction, and it's often one of the unshortsighted, you know, with with, uh, short-sighted, skeptical, bated breath, the atheist, the agnostic, you know, the, the skeptic wants to use to show, oh, the Bible really can't be the word of God, there's errors in it, or so on. If you look more deeply with the study aid, like the book I just showed you, what you will often find is a surface reading of the scriptures leads you to believe something, but when you understand what it's truly saying, you find not only is the Bible without error, inerrant in all its pages, as the Holy Spirit is its Inspired force behind the human authorship, but you also find that the truth therein contained was far deeper than what you first understood. And this was my experience and study in studying this text. Why does a prophet, or why does Matthew uh, refer to Jeremiah and then quote Zechariah? Well, this is this is the reason. In the relationships between major and minor prophets in the Old Testament, was often Uh, close and dependent on one another. That is to say, a a Zechariah would build upon the revelation that was first delivered by a Jeremiah. And oftentimes early writers during this period would refer to more than one prophet by the prophet who was the figurehead, that is the major prophet. To say Jeremiah was to subsume Jeremiah and Zechariah into one. As you notice this prophecy more closely, I don't have time to parse this all out for you today, but I'll give you the references. You turn to Zechariah 11:12 12 through 13. You turn to Jeremiah 32, 6 through 9. Jeremiah 18, 2, 19, 2, 19, 11. In all of those passages, what you find is the most direct references to potter, pottery or a potter's field or a place outside of Jerusalem was used by Jeremiah and exclusively him, as, as I understand it, a prophetic device that explains the covenant aspects of the covenantal relationship between Israel and their Lord. In other words, the potter's field is significant. The uh, pottery and a and, uh, broken vessel and at one point in Jeremiah's account is symbolic of the relationship of Israel to their Lord, based upon their standing in the covenant. And so in citing Jeremiah, he includes Zechariah's words, and by the both of them makes the point that in the Scriptures, it is no surprise the events that we read of today. It was prophesied that the potter's field would be a byword, a place associated with judgment and rejection. It was a picture of Israel's plight, if they rejected their Messiah. They would be reduced to a broken vessel or a wasteland that was no good for anything, condemned by blood guilt to nothing more than a cemetery to bury strangers, a place marked by blood, guilt, judgment, and death. And so we see in the references and the connections, more light shed on this culminating gospel moment This potter language was original to Jeremiah as a prophetic device. Zechariah, as a minor prophet, builds on this revelation in his own work, and he is a prophet dependent on the greater, thus subsumed under this general reference. As I think about this, far from an objection by the skeptic that would seek to refute or show the Bible has errors, what our passage today actually presupposes is that the authors assumed a continuity of Scripture. Whether Jeremiah or Zechariah was speaking, it was the Lord who was speaking. The stark divisions you know, of chapter and verse and book are sometimes problematic for us at first glance because it's easy for us to forget that the Bible is a unified whole. But the Bible, as far as the Bible is concerned, is a unified whole. And Matthew testifies to this even in the nature of the quotation that he gives citing the prophets of old. The word of God has been established as a continuous stream of truth and it is never broken and it will never fail. It will always achieve that which God intends and whatever it prophesies will come true. And so it was coming true at this very moment. Secondly, this morning, under a final point, varied cross-references, cross-reference connections. Turn to Acts 1. Peter himself recounts this moment of Judas' demise and it seems again to be a little different. But a closer examination, the the same concept, I submit to you, is featured here. Notice what Peter says, and it's interesting to note that this is in fact Peter who is saying this. What does this assume? Peter has been forgiven. Peter is regenerate. Peter has been reinstated as an apostle. This, the man who had denied Christ three times is now commissioned to be a leader among others to move forward Christ's church. And one of his first acts of leadership is to declare the following. He says of Judas, Acts 1.18, Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. A dramatic and graphic picture indeed. Verse 19, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, akeldama, that is, field of blood. He goes on to say two accounts, or he goes on to quote two accounts from the Psalms. In this passage, the skeptic might ask again, oh, so which is it? Did he fall headlong and break himself and die that way, or was he hanged? And the answer is yes. Think about it for a moment, the, the, gospel, or the, uh, the culminating gospel moments of Calvary itself. Think about the geological happenings. Think about the weather events that would soon unfold. When Christ gave up the ghost, On the cross, when he uttered his last words, a mighty earthquake shook the ground. A storm was building, and it is as if the elements of nature themselves cried out in anguish at the moment of their creator's darkest hour. They shook, they trembled, no doubt winds blew, lightning struck. And the ground was unstable beneath the feet. Imagine Judas' body swinging from a tree over a precipice when the wind begins to build and the earthquake signaling it is finished cracks the ground around Jerusalem. That might certainly be enough to dislodge the branch from which he swung and send him careening headlong to his demise in the gulch above which he swung. It's a graphic picture indeed, but it is biblical. What is its purpose? Its purpose is to show us the absolute, destitute, horrific failure of dying without Christ. If you think hanging because you're so distraught, you have nothing left in your mind, driven crazy by your own sin to suicide is a bad thing, If you think the disgraceful death of not being buried but careening headlong till your insides fall out at the bottom of the cliff of your own judgment is bad, God forbid you get one glimpse into hell itself. Our God is righteous, and for sins against His holiness, He demands proportional judgment. And in Judas' judgment, even in this temporal sense, we get just a picture of the hellish destiny of those who do not place their faith in Christ. But on the other side of things, with the reinstitution of Peter, the man who also denied him, we see the call of Christ afresh, follow me. We see the call of Christ three times, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep we see a reinvigorated Peter now imbued with the Holy Spirit going dressed by someone else with arms stretched out to die a martyr's death boldly without fear and without apostasy for Christ his Lord to receive the crown of eternal reward because now he believed in his heart, in his soul that blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when all men persecute you for my name's sake. Your reward is not here, but in glory. Peter goes on to quote two psalms by extension. Psalm 69 and 109. What a great study it would be to look at them in light of these events. And we may do that in upcoming weeks. Suffice it to say, if you look at those psalms, you will find glorious messianic prophecy and promise. The suffering Messiah is celebrated in Psalm 69. The imprecatory, that is judgment worthy on the enemies of the Messiah, is heralded in Psalm 109. In the first Psalm, there's references in verse 9, to the zeal for your house that consumed me. A direct reference to Christ's own confession and meaning of cleansing the temple. In Psalm 69, 21, it says, They gave me sour wine to drink. A direct reference to His execution, shameful death on Calvary. Psalm 109, verse 8 says, May His days be few, speaking of the accuser and the enemy. May another take his office. And so it happened. In closing this morning, remember the difference between Judas and Peter. In fact, the difference between Judas and any believer. Who dies for your sins? Will Christ die for your sins as you confess him as your Savior and you receive life eternal? You never die, that is to say, spiritually, ultimately speaking, or will you die For your sins and suffer eternally in judgment for them. That is the difference between Judas and anyone who repents and places their faith in Christ. I adjure you this morning if you do not know him, call out to him today. He will hear you. I pray the Spirit will give you ears to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd saying, Follow me. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for the precious promises, the pure gold that outlasts anything this life can boast that we find in the gospel. We thank you for the heavy truths. We thank you for the soaring grace. We thank you for the reality of all your nature and character revealed to us in its pristine and singular glory from every page of Scripture. I pray that your word would move us to worship in light of its truth if we are in you today. I pray that your word would move anyone in this room who may be outside the sheepfold to repentance and faith when they see the stark gospel lines that are drawn between the sinner and the one saved by grace. And I pray, Lord, through the equipping of your word today, that we would be bold like your saints of old, like Peter and company, who in the face of even persecution did not fail to tell this story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.